Good evening, good evening. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the podcast The Endurance of Labor Laws. I'm your lovely host Leslie Sullivan, and today is episode 113, and we're going to take a look at the United States Federal Witness Protection Program. I learned quite a bit with this one. I did not know the history of it, so it's pretty interesting. But first of all, let me give a big shout out to my listeners. So here we go. A big shout out to Virginia, Oklahoma, Texas, New York, Pennsylvania, British Columbia, Illinois, Oregon, Florida, Alabama, Ohio, Massachusetts, California, District of Columbia, Indiana, Minnesota, Washington, Rhode Island, Colorado, Michigan, New Brunswick, Louisiana, Connecticut, and Manitoba. In terms of countries, the United States, Canada, the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Slovakia, South Africa, Japan, and Denmark. So it's good to see you guys. Okay, so let's jump into this puppy. It's short, but it's very interesting. So here we go. It says the United States Federal Witness Protection Program, also known as WPP, and also known as the Witness Security Program or WITSEC, is a witness protection program codified through 18 US Code 3521 and administered by the United States Department of Justice and operated by the United States Marshal Service that is designed to protect threatened witnesses before, during and after trial. A handful of states, California, Connecticut, Illinois, New York and Texas and Washington DC have their own witness protection programs for crimes not covered by the federal program. That kind of surprised me there because I thought the federal program would would cover more so that states would not have to intervene, but this is a good reason why they have states rights. So there's a reason why states have rights of their own, but we but yet we are still part of the United States. So yes, we come together as a country, but each state manages its own state in its own way. That's why it's important for states to be aware of what is going on in their state and why citizens should vote. Even if I don't agree with how some people vote, not my business, not my problem, at least people should get out and vote and exercise that right. It goes on to say, the state-run programs provide less extensive protections than the federal program, in part because state governments lack the ability to issue federal documents such as social security cards verifying the new identity of protected witnesses. Now, I will say this in regards to social security cards, be careful how many of those you lose because I didn't know this, you're only issued so many throughout your lifetime, like they keep track of them, which I think is stupid because I think I've lost like two of them and it was, it was almost always when I was moving and for some reason they would just go missing. And I was just like, where are these going? It just took me aback and I didn't know till I requested the second or third one. The lady said, "You do know you're only allowed so many social security cards in your lifetime, right?" I was like, "What? So I can only have X amount, you know, let's say I live to be 120. You know, what if I lose all of them by the time I'm 70?" <laughs> so the last so many years of my life i'm not going to have a social security card like that's just dumb it makes no sense but anyway just fyi be aware that you're only issued so many social security cards throughout your entire lifetime so protect that puppy it goes on to say the witness protection program was formally established under title 5 of the organized crime control act of 1970 which in turn sets out the manner in which the United States Attorney General may provide for the relocation and protection of a witness or a potential witness of the federal or state government 
in an official proceeding concerning organized crime or other serious offenses. The federal government also gives grants to the states to enable them to provide similar services. The Witness Protection Program was originally created as the Federal Witness Protection Program in the mid-1960s by Gerald Schur when he was attorney in charge of the Intelligence and Special Services Unit of the Organized Crime and Racketeering Section of the United States Department of Justice. Most witnesses are protected by the United States Marshal Service, while protection of incarcerated witnesses is the duty of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So that's one of those things that it's a good thing we're going over all these different federal agencies and federal programs because a lot of times they work with each other, not always against each other. Like they really do try and work together. At least I hope that 95% they try and do that. And in this case, it's very important that they do work with each other to coordinate, excuse me, the safety of a witness or a potential witness because we want to make sure that that their life is safe and secure for sure. goes on to say as of 2020 approximately 19,000 witnesses and family members have been protected by the United States Marshal Service since the program began in 1971 according to Gerald Schur who created the federal program about 95% of witnesses in the program are criminals they may be intentional criminals or people who are doing business with criminals such as one engineer who bought off a mayor because that's how you do business in the city in his mind he wasn't doing anything criminal as sure said a witness who agrees to testify for the prosecution is generally eligible to join the program which is entirely voluntary witnesses are permitted to leave the program and return to their original identities at any time although this is discouraged by administrators obviously because they could be killed In both criminal and civil matters involving protected witnesses, the US Marshals cooperate fully with local law enforcement and court authorities to bring witnesses to justice or to have them fulfill their legal responsibilities. Fewer than 17% of protected witnesses who have committed crimes are caught committing other crimes, compared to parolees of whom almost 42% return to crime. So, it's one of those things that I think sometimes it's hard for prosecutors and I'm not saying that I side with prosecutors on a bunch of stuff but you know sometimes it's hard to bring bad people to justice and to take them to court if people are so terrified and scared that they they can't be a witness against the person that has hurt them or hurt other people. So I find it very interesting that this program did not come about until the early 70s because Organized crime was a way bigger problem in the 20s and 30s. Way bigger problem, especially during prohibition and things of that nature. So I'm surprised that it took, you know, almost 40 years for this program to come about when organized crime was in its full swing in the 20s and 30s. And if you want evidence of that or just kind of a glimpse into that, excuse me, I have the hiccups a little bit. You can look at films from the 30s and 40s that depict things that were going on in the 20s and 30s and sometimes even into the 1940s. I would say in terms of which decade I think had more organized crime, I would say the 1930s, definitely. I think there's a lot of organized crime that occurred in the United States, but also because there were families that were ruling certain neighborhoods and cities within the United States, but they had connections back to Italy. 
and I think France and Spain, but predominantly Italy. And there also could have been some connections to uh, the Soviet Union back then, but I think it was more along the lines of there were certain criminals that controlled certain areas of cities, and you you paid them for protection. So what's interesting is that if you go by how people live on the street back in those days, it was if you had a place of business, almost like a godfather kind of situation like that movie, that is very accurate. Like you're, you're paying someone for protection so you don't get robbed. So it's like you're paying for a security system, but at the same time, the people that you're paying to protect you in terms of it being shady and underground, they could also rob you or kill you, especially if, if they increase their rates. Whereas with the federal, um, federal Witness Protection Program, this is paid for by our tax dollars. And you know, we do everything we can to protect people. So it's one of those things that we need to be aware of people that are in danger and that people have a right to give testimony in court. And they have a right to do that without having a, a fear of losing their life because that, that's very concerning to me. Another example of this um, would be in Mexico. Now, let me say this. The crimes that we have take place here in regards to organized crime and racketeering and things of that nature, it is nothing compared to what happens in Mexico. Mexico is very gang-infested. It's very crime-ridden. Um, there's kidnappings. There's murders. I mean, there, there's so many drug offenses. It's unbelievable. And so I always find it interesting whenever people are going crazy over, like, the, the opioid crisis. I'm like, you know, to me that's so dumb because if you look at the data of how many people have been actually prescribed opioids, it's only minuscule how many people have actually died from an opioid overdose, and it's only a fraction of how many actually get addicted to it. And here's the thing. I have yet to see a case where someone died from an opioid, opioid overdose and it was actually a prescription drug and not a street drug. See, I don't think it's right to take a drug manufacturer to court based on drugs that a person purchased from the street. That's not right. To me, that's just greed. That's money grabbing. And I think sometimes victims' families do that And I just think, you know, how is their greed any different than what organized crime does? See, we need to be very careful what court cases actually go to court because court cases tend to set the stage and they, they set a, a standard of kind of, of what we expect to happen in court and in court proceedings. And almost it doesn't always determine the verdict per se, but, you know, there are some people, they always want the person to be guilty. And it's like, you know... That's not right. People are, people are innocent until proven guilty, and that includes drug manufacturers. That includes pharmaceutical companies. And what people may not realize, and this is kind of a side note, so I guess consider this a two-for-one special. You know, pharmaceutical drugs, they have identifiers on them. So whenever someone dies from an overdose, I would think that the medical examiner would, would want to identify what is the source of the drug. And what identifier is on it? Because just because there is a substance in someone's bloodstream does not mean that it came from XYZ drug manufacturer. It could have come from another drug manufacturer or it could have been made on the streets. 
That's why it's so important that whenever they are they are investigating something, they need to properly investigate this stuff. That's why I do not agree with so many of these drug overdose cases where these people, it's usually a young person like a teeny bopper or a 20-something year old that has a, a drug addiction problem. They already have a life issue, so to speak, a negative one. And so then it leads to them getting stuff on the streets. Well, that's not the fault of the manufacturer. Not at all. People are responsible for their personal actions. A drug manufacturer did not force them to take that medicine. And there might be some people that will say, "Well, it caused them to have an addiction." That's not true. That is not true. You know, I'm really sick and tired of people using the whole addiction excuse to just live the lifestyle of whatever they want. And then when they get caught living that lifestyle, they blame somebody else, not themselves. Well, it's kind of hard to change your life and have a better life if you're constantly blaming somebody else for your actions. Like I've dated druggies. I didn't know they were druggies in the beginning, but you know what? People that have addictions like that, especially when we're when related to drugs, They are very selfish people. They will use anyone and anything to get to get their fix. It's all about them. It's not about other people. It's only about them. It's a very selfish lifestyle. So I don't really feel pity for people per se that participate in that lifestyle because it is a choice. They they got involved in something they should not have gotten involved in, and if they truly want to walk away from it, either A, they would walk away from it, or b they would get help and c they would take it seriously and never do that substance again but there there's a just from the guys that I've dated it's like they it's been my experience they always made a choice to go out and get that drug and here's the thing they were so stupid whenever they were trying to get their fix like they didn't care if it came from a clean source or from a dirty source and what i mean by that is getting it like prescription wise or getting it street wise which are called dirty drugs because you don't know what the what the strength of that medicine is and technically when you're getting it on the street it's not a medication anymore it's technically just a a street drug that someone probably put together in their kitchen like who knows what is going in there i mean for all we know they put lysol in it i mean like you have to think about that so needless to say you know Our court system sometimes it has a hard time making the right decision and I think sometimes jurors get extremely persuaded and convinced that a crime has been committed when it actually has not. Now, an organized crime, that's a whole different case. Organized crime usually deals with a family or a, a people that act like a family but they may not be like blood relatives or something, you know, like gang violence and things like that. but they they have this code, right? They have this this their their code that you don't break within their little clan. Well, the the federal witness protection program really does a good job of protecting people that yes, they are criminals, but they're trying to help bring down a bad group of people that are probably um selling drugs. It usually has to deal with drugs, prostitution, um illegal traffic uh, trafficking of people of course it's always illegal to traffic people but um you're usually dealing with human rights violations and th- there's just a lot that goes into that and sometimes these organized families 
they will buy and sell weaponry uh, sorry weaponry illegal weapons and so that's a big problem there and you know sometimes we have cases where we hear about there were illegal weapons brought in from Mexico and from Central America like the, these these latin countries are not all sweet and innocent you know i i feel sorry for their people because you know whatever murders and situations we have going on here in the United States is nothing compared to what happens in these Latin American countries they are riddled with crime it's very drug infested it's very serious and what sucks about these Latin American countries is that a lot of their government officials can be bought and sold to the highest bidder That's why their corruption is on a totally different level than what we have going on here in the United States. Like our stuff is peanuts compared to what goes on in other countries. And the reason why ours is peanuts is because we don't have the same kind of criminals. We we don't have the the same lack of due diligence, I would say. And even though our our system is not perfect, it sets a pretty high standard of what we consider to be acceptable human behavior and what is not considered acceptable human behavior. You know, like for example, I remember this boss I had she was supposed to go on vacation with her husband down to Mexico and this was several years ago. And um there was a a what what's it called? It's where you go to the what's it called? the the state site or something that talks about, you know, travel bans and things like that. I guess it's the I think it's the Department of Homeland Security or something like that. And it lists like where there are travel bans or you can go, but hey, it's a really high risk especially for Americans because they stay on top of that. Um our federal agencies do in regards to keeping Americans safe whenever they they go travel to other countries. Well, she mentioned the place where she and her husband were going. I said, "Well, have you have you checked the the United States, you know, like travel website like of where Americans can go right now and where they cannot go and they have a chart that says basically what color each each country is in, like if it's a red zone, you cannot go there. Even if you try to board a plane to get there, you can't go you can't go there unless you have permission from the government. Like that's really bad stuff. So they have all these different um variations of different coloring on the map of what is considered a safe area, slightly not safe, really unsafe and extremely unsafe. And she didn't have a clue about this website. I was like, "Well, you need to go check it out. I think it's the Department of Homeland Security or whatever, or the State Department. I can't remember which which one it was, at least at that time." Excuse me. I said, "You need to check that out for you and your husband's safety because you may not be able to go just because you can purchase a plane ticket and you can purchase a really nice swanky resort you know weekend trip or week trip that doesn't mean you should go or that you will get to go and so she goes back to her office because she was always kind of rolling her eyes at me <laughs> and it's just kind of like okay you need to be careful about stuff like that cuz there's a lot a lot of stuff going on with with Americans being murdered and i was right um she went to i guess the the state website or department of homeland security or whatever And sure enough, the region and area that she and her husband were going to go that had this beautiful resort, they did not get to go because there there had been a recent killing of all these American tourists. 
And I know this is a dime a dozen of these stories, but I guess what happened was there were these tourists, Americans, they were on this bus, they were traveling, I guess, to their resort or to like a a museum or something in this country. And it got stopped by these gang members. They murdered the bus driver who was a citizen of their country, so they don't even care about their own citizens anyway. But they were really brutal to the Americans. They forced them off the bus. They robbed them, beat them. Who knows what else they did to them to torture them? Um, they they shot most of them, and then some of them they beheaded, and then they threw their heads and their bodies into a ditch that they dug. So, needless to say, I remember my boss coming up to my desk, and she said, "You know, I'm really grateful that you told me about that because there's a travel ban right now, and this is why." And I said, "Well, you're welcome." You know, like from that moment on, she didn't really roll her eyes at me anymore after that. <laughs> you know, she knew that, "Hey, you know, this this chickadee, she knows what she's talking about." And um she um I don't know. I guess she realized that you know, to be educated doesn't mean that you're worried or fearful. It just means that you make better decisions. And I guess she never looked at it that way because I think she She didn't like the fact that I would read, you know, encyclopedia books and you know different um documentary, I guess, type books during my lunch hour. And she didn't even like those books sitting on my desk. It was really weird. She was a control freak. So we were just different people. Um I guess I was more left-side-brained on certain things than she was, and she just was not in tune with um things that were going on in the country. It's like she was in her own little world. And you know, ignorance can be bliss, but ignorance can also get you killed. And what's interesting, what really disturbed her was the fact that the resort was right in the middle of that area of where that killing took place, but yet the resort took her and her husband's money online. They allowed them to book a trip, and they did not even make them aware of what had been happening in the area and that Americans are being targeted. See, here's the thing. Resorts and hotels, they typically know that stuff. Like they they are not ignorant. But the thing is is that it really looked bad on this resort because it gave the very strong impression that all they cared about was getting money from these Americans and they didn't care if they died. So for those that say that Americans are all about money and that that's all we care about, that's not true. There are so many countries that have greed and then their their businesses within their countries they literally don't care about people that visit them there and they don't value the safety of the tourist which is really sad because if you really care about people and also if you want people to come back and visit you year after year and continue to do business with you i would think that you would value their life you know kind of thing i think that that would be basic like that's what my mom and i experienced when we uh, went to italy that one time We had several different tour guides and they they always cared about our safety. Always. There was one that didn't give a hoot and she was American, she was a jerk. We didn't really like her. We never traveled with her again. But the ones that were from um actually Italy, they very much cared about our safety and if we if we had a concern or a question, they answered it. It wasn't, "Oh, you stupid Americans." It was never like that. They always took really good care of us. And I'll give you an example. The last couple of days that I was there, um in Italy 
I did not feel very good. I mean, I had a migraine that would not go away. I felt really sick. And so um, I had to go get a medication from, from a pharmacy. And what was interesting was the, the pharmacies over there are nothing like the pharmacies here in the United States, obviously. They, they are small. They're kind of mom-and-pop shop kind of things. They don't have chains, I would say, not like we do here. And they are not huge. They're not super centers. They're tucked away. And what's really cool is that these pharmacies, they're in these beautiful Roman buildings. It's so beautiful. It's just so fascinating that you have a pharmacy in this beautiful building that's like from the 1300s, 800s, you know, really far back in time, like in Pompeii or Rome or whatever the case may be. So it, it just feels weird walking into a really beautiful historical building, but yet, but yet you're going there for kind of like a modern issue. You know, I need my, my, my prescription and I need help with this. And what's interesting is that the pharmacist did not speak any English And so we were trying to communicate, and I did not know any Italian at that time. I knew very little, hardly any at all, and plus I didn't feel very good. And so my mom and I were trying to talk to the pharmacist, and she was so sweet. She was absolutely sweet, and you could tell that you know, she was concerned for my welfare and my well-being, and she was really trying hard to understand what we were saying. And so th there was a bit of a language barrier, but, but it's so interesting. Like this pharmacist, she went out of her way. to translate things and to make sure that even though English was not her first language or even her second or third language, I would say, she knew that I didn't feel very good and I was there for a reason and I needed help. And so one of the prescriptions I got, it was something you know, to help with nausea or something like that. And we were making sure that it, it doesn't interact with anything else I was having to take for whatever sickness I had at that time and traveling overseas. And uh, make sure I don't have any allergic reactions. Like even though the, the, the box was written in Italian for this drug, you know, we were, we were able to, at best, I guess, best way I can describe it is to translate, decode it, and figure out, okay, what units do I take and how do I take this and things like that. And I was really impressed with that pharmacist. Even though we had a language barrier, you know, we... we, we um, We worked through it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And it ended up being really good, and the pharmacist was really kind, really sweet. But it just felt weird walking into a building that is so beautiful architecture-wise. Because, I mean, I'm used to Walmart and Target and CVS and Walgreens. Like, those buildings are not beautiful. <laughs> you know? I think they would make more money if they were beautiful. Because I don't like this industrial look. I never have. I never will. And what's interesting is that whenever I walk into a Walgreens and they have... You know, the old school photos up of what the original Walgreens pharmacies used to look like. They, they'd have like a, a soda shop in there. Bring those back. I would love that. I would love that. You know, that was such a neat thing to do. Like, I think they would get more business if they had an ice cream shop in there. <laughs> I really do. I personally think it would be wonderful. But anyway, I, I've talked enough about that. But I will go ahead and end this podcast. But again... Um, we were discussing the, the United States Federal Witness Protection Program. And just FYI, we'll go over another thing that is celebrated in the month of June. It is National Dairy Month. So if you like dairy products such as ice cream, this is your month. So definitely go to Brahms or buy, buy yourself some Bluebell ice cream. My personal favorite is cookies and cream and then uh, chocolate chip cookie dough, but, but without the caramel swirl. 
Brahms has changed one of their ice creams, and I don't. I haven't ordered it or bought it, but I don't like it because I don't like having caramel in there. They um, they added caramel to the chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, and it used to not be like that. It used to just be chocolate chip cookie dough and vanilla ice cream, and that's really all I wanted. But now they've got caramel in it, and I'm just not a huge caramel fan. I kind of see it as unnecessary calories. I'm just like, eh, I don't like that. Save my calories for something else. But anyway, um, so happy National Dairy Month. So do pamper yourself a little bit every now and then, especially during the summer. when it is very much hot and humid and hopefully all of us are absorbing lots of vitamin D and getting a wonderful tan but until next time i pray that you're happy healthy and whole that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week thank you so much bye bye Waves transform